All right, welcome to the Jig is Up. Joining me as always is Jason. How you doing, Jason? Very good this evening. How are things down south? They are wonderful. We've had some great weather and things are melting, but we got a little bit of snow coming on the way. But I'm still optimistic and happy first day of spring to everybody. Uh -huh, absolutely, even the snow is melting up here. Nice. You can't complain with that. I wanted to start off tonight. We talked a little bit about uh, the musician on the East Coast that was denied a nomination for an award, uh, Maxim Cormier. I, th I hope I say his name right. Um, and, you know, I, I so I took the time to, to go and actually listen to a bit of his music and stuff like that, and I, I got to iTunes and I downloaded it. I bought it and downloaded it, and I want to encourage everybody to get out there and do that. Um, his music is actually amazing. And, uh, you know, I really honestly think... And it was just the uh, the award show was the loser in this situation because his music is absolutely amazing. So if if anybody else wants to to go out there and show your support and actually really show your support for him, you can go to his website at www.maximcormier.com and buy his CDs there. There's he's got like a three three pack and then he's got just individual CDs. Uh, or you can go to iTunes like I did and uh, buy his music there. I think he's got uh, two on there that I bought. So show your support, man. I think he handled all of that stuff with a, with a lot of class and integrity. So, uh, you know, go get out there and show your support for him. Um, Absolutely. It's a real way to, to make a meaningful impact is to, to watch the number of downloads on your music go up because people are supporting you. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I hope he has nothing but continued success. He's He seems to travel quite extensively to other countries and things like that. So I'm sure he will continue to be quite successful, especially with the amount of talent he's got. Yeah, um, he's quite a talented guy. Oh, yeah. And one of the uh, – we got an interesting message uh, via email um, that I wanted to just say a thank, big thank you to the, the person, that, the listener that sent us the email. Um, they're, they're in school, they're in university and they're doing an indigenous studies course and they wanted, they asked us if we, uh, if we, they could reference us in their essay that they're writing. Um, I don't even know what it's about, but in one of their essays they're writing for their, as part of their schoolwork. So I, I felt really honored to be mentioned in an essay in, in a university. So I'm glad that our show is going to be mentioned and I just want to say thank you to the listener for for doing that that's really awesome and we're i feel really honored for that <laughs> yeah me too it's uh i never thought when we started the show that uh anyone at the university level would be referencing anything we had to say <laughs> you know i didn't either um and so it, it's truly is an honor so i i really want to extend nothing but but a, th a huge thank you um absolutely yeah so now let's get into a few pieces of news that are hitting the Métis world these days. Um, of course, there's the big talks between the MNC and the government and their bilateral fundamental framework memorandum agreement talks. I don't even know what they're called anymore because um, they have... Uh, I think it's officially called White Paper 2.1. 2.0? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Uh, too was, soon for that one already? Yeah, no, yeah. Hey, man, you knocked it out of the park on that one. Um, so what are your thoughts on this, Jason? I mean, they're talking about all the big dollars that from the budget 2018 and how they're going to spend it all. So I know I'm excited. Well, yeah, well, you and I have talked about the budget issue before and, and what's going to actually happen with dollars in people's hands. And, uh, you know, and then you see today, like we've talked about before, 
and our listeners are well aware, is you, you look at the dollar amount that these guys are blabbing about in these horrendously expensive meetings. And today you see articles coming out again, reporting on the, the appalling conditions of, of Métis people living in Conklin. And you wonder, well, gee, exactly how much money is, are those people going to see to get out of that mold-infested, you know, homes? Absolutely. And and I seen a, uh, one of the responses from a member of the of the Conklin community to uh, that CBC article. If anybody didn't see it, there was a CBC article that came out about the Conklin housing crisis. And, uh, you know, they were cautioning that they really hope that this money doesn't trickle down to the local the Métis Nation local government level um, for the obvious lack of transparency, accountability, um, or anything like that. So it's it's an interesting thing, and I agree with you. I don't think we're going to see a whole lot trickle down to the actual communities and members of those communities. Um, the one thing that I've noticed a lot lately is that the Métis Nation has a lot of money for traveling around the province and doing membership drives, doing um, meetings regarding all sorts of things now. I think I've seen three different traveling road shows, if you if you want to call them that. And, I mean, so they must have the money coming in. But, I again, that's not going down to the community level. That's for paying, well, paying people to travel well, around. I, yeah, you and I both know that the bulk of all the money that they get in will be split in departments and used in administration. And I think every one of these people, you know, yakety-yacking about, uh, you know, government-to-government relations, what you're going to see is exactly what everybody in First Nations communities is, is talking about, is basically the white paper enactment. They're talking about how these things, uh, these agencies are now nothing more than a framework for manufactured consent. Yes. And so if we're talking about uh, water, we're talking about land, we're talking about restoration, I think the reality is that is the very last thing you're going to see come out of these meetings. Yeah. And I actually, I did get a, I got all my hands on a, on a paper that talks about exactly that. And I haven't had a chance to sit down and actually read it thoroughly. Um, but it talks about the, the dangers of this new language the government's using to... Um, basically usurp the land again and kind of minimize indigenous rights and doing it through all through the framework agreements and all through the reconciliation language. But you're right, it essentially boils down to white papers 2.0. Um, and I think there are a lot of people that are starting to see that now, um, just in well, the government's attitude. To, yeah. Well, and if you're listening to the conversations going on with uh, a lot of indigenous lawyers who are within the AFN movement, they're saying exactly the same things you and I are about uh, this agreement. These frameworks are being used in, in First Nations communities to erode treaty rights and, and turn them into municipalities and erode uh, authority that uh, First Nations have over the lands. And I think that's exactly, we'd be fooling ourselves to think that it is any different than what's going on with these high-profile meetings that uh, the MNC loves to throw around on the old Facebook. Absolutely, and, and again, it goes back to the re- same reason that uh, why doesn't the government of Canada sit down and actually really, really listen and talk to uh, you know some Eastern Métis organizations? Uh, well, there's a reason for that. It's because they don't have to. 
they've already got their organization that they command, basically, with their dollars and their funding. And, uh, you know, that organization is more than happy to do what the government agenda is. And uh, it comes with a huge, huge amount of uh, money. And so can you can you fault them for wanting to do better and wanting more funding and stuff like that? Of course not. But yeah, it, it does boil down to basically, well, now you've consented. So Yeah, and then as far as the Eastern, uh, the Métis-specific issues go, why in the world would a government want to legitimize another organization to represent more Métis people, which in the end will only cost them more money? Yeah. Right now, the federal government is in a complete position that even with the Daniels case, they can just stick their head in the sand until more litigation comes forward and kick that financial football down the road further. Absolutely, because they're, I think they're keenly aware that, it you know, with any court case, I mean, the, the Daniels decision took 20 years. Well, it's, it's going to take any other court case another 20 years to come through the, the pipes. Well... Minister Carolyn Bennett is not going to be Minister Carolyn Bennett for the next 20 years. Uh, there's just no yeah. way that's going to happen. So, um, yeah, it's just kick the ball down the court and, and hope that they make it through relatively unscathed. Well, and what they're going to do is set, a, and they're doing it at an excellent rate uh, rate by reframing the, the conversation, uh, is being able to minimize all Indigenous control, access, or restrictive ability to inhibit the colonial government from resource extraction. Absolutely. And for all, and it, and it really is, it's telling. I mean, it's very telling. Métis people's number one, number one and number two thing that you talk about, any Métis person is what do they want? They want their land and they want hunting rights. And, and the reality is for all these agreements, all these frameworks, all these meetings, and all these billions of dollars, this government of Métis people that's negotiating nation to nation hasn't got one acre. Absolutely. Yeah. Unless you're going to talk about renting office space. <laughs> and then they got lots, like got lots of space for that, but you've right. got lots of acreage. Yeah, you're right. They don't have any land. Um, they are starting to deal with the hunting rights, at least here in Alberta. I know that other provinces have have some sort of hunting framework or harvesting framework. But again, that's on a provincial level too. Um, and, you know, even in Alberta, I mean, they're doing all these meetings. It was one of the things they're running around Alberta doing all these meetings, but they're not meeting with any Métis south of Red Deer. Uh, actually, I don't think well, any Métis yeah. south of Edmonton even. So, As you and, you and I discussed in our last podcast, there are no Métis south of Red Deer. That's right. Like At least none that matter, right? <laughs> Yeah, so, so I mean, I mean, I'm I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure they're gonna have to redraw that Métis homeland map again, because yeah. they'll have to carve out that little piece there where the you know in southern Alberta that the Blackfoot take up from Red Deer South. Oh, absolutely. That's no longer that's no longer the Métis homeland. Yeah. No, absolutely not. And uh, you know, I think it's just a. I mean, it's I th- I feel it's a complete ripoff for if you're not representing all your Métis members equally. Well, then what's the point? You're Again, another example of how it's not a democracy. You're not equally represented. If you were, they'd be talking about, well, what can we do for our people in the South for hunting rights? Not, ah, well, we'll deal with that some other time. (laughs) Well, but even the language they used on the issue wasn't, we'll deal with that some other time, is that there are no Blackfoot Métis. Yeah, exactly. Well, that means there's no Métis people in that region 
that is can is the black you know that treaty territory that that will ever be able to harvest which means if you're a Métis person and you're from Red River or you're from up in my neck of the woods and you moved to Calgary, well, I'm, you, you didn't, you moved outside the Métis homeland is essentially what they're saying. Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's so many questions I have about what are they going to do? Are they really negotiating with the government or is the government said, Hey, come up with a few points and how you're going to come up with a plan on how you're going to determine who's a harvester and give us that. And then we'll go with that. Um, but one of the big questions I have is like, you know, an issue that I've heard raised several times, especially in the Conklin community, from their hunters, their harvesters, um, is that there's so much industry around them that if you stick them within that 160 kilometer radius of Conklin, well, that actually doesn't give them a lot of hunting area because there's so much industry. And of course, they can't fire guns anywhere near industry uh, or oil wells or pipelines. So they really kind of narrowed it down so it's not even 160 kilometers of good hunting grounds. It's patchwork little pieces here and there. Um, but the guy said it's getting harder and harder and harder to even hunt rabbits, let alone big game, just because it's they're getting thinner and thinner. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at the Lac-Saint-Anne community that has harvesting rights and it's 160 kilometers. So, I mean, they have the lake, and you can go fishing, and you have harvesting rights over the lake, which is uh, it's really nice. But if you're talking about big game and things like that, well, you're really restricted to lease roads and a few acres of bush. And if you can get consent on some farmer's land, but as far as actual real estate to go hunting, I mean, where would you do that? Exactly. And, and so we use this negotiated framework of harvesting rights is that you've, you, the, the government gives you the right to exercise your right. And for the trade-off, is yours restricted to 160 kilometers of that specific town, regardless of the industrial development? Exactly. And so, is that something that's going to be in these negotiations? So, and that's my, you know, that that's my big, I guess, disappointment in all of this. One of them, anyway, is that they talk about negotiating, but they are not negotiating because if they were, they would be raising these concerns and fighting for these things to get resolved. But I guarantee if they do raise the issue, well, what do we do about this? The government's going to go, well, nothing. That's the rules, and that's the way it is. And they're going to go, okay, that sounds good. Well, that's if that's how yeah, you guys want it, because you guys pay well, for and, it. And the, bigger, and the bigger challenge that I see, too, as well, is that when you get onto the social media and you try to have this kinds of discussion, the people who are M and C supporters are so myopic is that they can't wrap their heads around these kinds of concepts. Yeah. It's it's either, and, and we've lost this ability to have a middle ground of consensus building about what we should do about these problems. And either, and it, it boils down to this great gulf of you either are an ardent supporter and you're all in behind the nation, or you're some kind of out in the bush naysayer. Yeah. And yeah. and where do we, where do we as an indigenous people lose the ability to build consensus. Exactly, yeah. And uh, I, I find that too. I find it's very polarized. Like you, if you're going to support the MNC and the MNA and all these organizations, it's full in. You're all in or you're all out. There's no middle ground. Um, and, and you I, see I, that. There's a very radicalized view of, of supporting uh, a nonprofit or a, or a corporation. Well, really, I mean, 
when you talk about a government, let's pretend for a minute that they are an actual government, which they're not. But if they were, isn't a dissenting voice, isn't a an opposition voice extremely important to any demo- democracy? Um, so when well, you're so much so, even the settlers understand that, right? We I mean, how we have we have how many dissenting parties here in in the Canadian framework, and if the settlers can figure out that that's a good thing, I'm I'm pretty sure us Indigenous folks should have got a handle on that. Exactly, and then like you were saying a minute ago with the consensus building, if you're going to go with one kind of I guess part one party government, then you really have to framework the consensus conversation and say no everybody can have their own opinion we're all going to listen and we're going to be treated with respect with dignity and fairly and then we'll all come to a decision it's going to take a lot longer but we'll come to a consensus based decision like it used to be um so there's one or the other but you can't you can't have the the democracy without the consensus building but only a one-party democracy that's that's not a democracy then and I don't understand how these, like, I mean, honestly, I love, you know, I, I've, I live in Canada. I do enjoy living here. But being critical of the government, of the way it spends money, of what it does, I think that's an inherent right that everybody should exercise. And I think it's the same thing when you look at Métis organizations. I mean, look at First Nations. They voice their opposition to their chief and council if they have it or, you know, whoever. Well, why can't we? Why can't we voice our... Well, I think it's not only a right. A right is a responsibility. Yes. When you fail to exercise the right, then you, you no longer are able to have the responsibility of that right. And I think the minute we're no longer to sit down and, and honestly question these processes and the government's motives and our ability to adequately negotiate at these tables before these frameworks are signed, if we don't have that and we can't have those conversations and it leads to this, this kind of big divide of hostility um, I'm not really sure how this is any more an indigenous process at all because we are now so far removed from anything that our ancestors did on the land and the places we used to come from. Absolutely. Well, and it, and it worries me that people are so willing to bl- just absolutely blindly follow and just say, nope, everything that they do is awesome. They are They are the best. That's just everything they do is great. Those that actually worries me because that means these organizations have a blank check to just do whatever they want, and people will simply just the, say, "Yeah, let's do yeah. it." Absolutely, we'll have to get some uh, beaded uh, T-shirts that say uh, "Check your colonialism." <laughs> That's a great idea. We should totally do that. <laughs> so, if anybody's out there who's uh, who's got the skills, boy, we we could probably market those. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to turn our attention away from the uh, the cartel organizations for a little bit. Um, I've been seeing on, on Facebook some posts, um, and I'm not French, so I'm going to butcher this name, I'm sure, but the, the Broad Door Lake Métis organization, um, it looks like they're having some meetings to determine whether they're willing to continue with their current leader or kind of remove the him and replace and and then move forward with replacing him. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I don't have a lot to say about it because I'm not part of their group and I have no, I guess, foot in that fire. Um, but I, I think it, for me, what stands out about this is um, there's a little bit of kind of, you know, 
organizational infighting. Not much, it seems like, but for me, it kind of highlighted the the problem with these nonprofit governance structures and uh, the fact that the whole community has to get together and has to get it, go to a meeting and then probably follow Robert's rules and have a vote and somebody's got to motion it and in order to remove somebody from leadership. And so I don't know. I mean, I know you didn't read about this, but what do you, what do you think about, you know, something like that? Is it a, is it a obvious nonprofit structure problem or is there other problems you think, Jason? Well, I think the, again, one, a, there is a problem again, when we no longer have the ability to solve our problems in the circle. And yeah. I think that's an ever-growing challenge in our society. We, we see this polarization taking place in every community, in every discussion. And I think that's fundamentally a problem that we need to solve before it's passed on to our youth and they inherit this problem. But second, you're absolutely right, Darcy, in the fact that this, this struggle with leadership from the community to the leadership and back and forth is the inherent problem that you and I both know is comes from uh, the nonprofit organizational structure where you have this board positional situation, right? Where you have this top-down governance. And so when your people are in power, they're not likely to get out of power. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things that I'm noticing, and I've been really looking at these nonprofits uh, of different kinds, even outside the Metis world, just any nonprofit. Um, here locally, we had a nonprofit that I actually... Uh, really enjoyed. Uh, it was a it was a an, an indigenous camp program, and that board kind of you know fell apart, and so now they're shutting everything down. They're they're turning off lights and they're they're calling it a day after about twenty years. And um, you know I'm I'm sad about that, but it kind of I use it as an opportunity for me to kind of look at well what what happened there? Like how did they go so wrong in in, in a matter of three or four years? It went from hugely successful to just right out the door and what i'm noticing is is the structure causes a divide between the board and the people and it just i think it's a natural division because it's a corporate um, structure so it divides the entity away from the people to kind of segregate it and keep it safe but then what you end up with is you end up with this board who has really no um, no interest or no, um, I guess no, no, you know, foot in the ring kind of thing. No, no, nothing in the ring to, for what the organization actually does. They're just there to control the money and the, and the funding and the rules, but they're not actually there to run a, a social organization or something like that. And I think that's a huge divide with these organ with nonprofit structures is, it separates out those two things and then they don't, nobody knows what's going on on the board and the board keeps it secret from everybody else. Well, I, I think that's the real challenge then, you know, you know, we've uh, tried very hard in creating organization to stay totally away from that because we see this in every level of colonial uh, European model governance structures is that the minute you have leadership, that leadership has an, an immediate disconnect from the people. And the greatest example of that is the Canadian state. Every one of us has to get up and go to work and pay our taxes. Otherwise, there's no taxes to pay and our government falls apart. Yes. So in order for me to go to work and pay my taxes, I have to elect an MP to take care of the governmental thing. And then the minute we do that, that guy's not accountable to me. 
mm-hmm. when I'm at my job and I'm too busy to care to keep him accountable. And so we have this golf. Yes. Yeah. And that every structure we have as indigenous people is pigeonholed into that defunct system. I mean, how, how do we expect it to work when there's no level of government in Canada today that exists that works well? Absolutely. You know, I've said that many times, uh, you know, my wife and I have talked about that a lot because, you know, there's the stereotype that, oh, the chief and council of every First Nation is corrupt and terrible and horrible and evil and everybody on it is evil. And I disagree with that. I think, I think it's, for me, I think it's the structure that was forced into place. So if you think that the chief and council are corrupt, how did they become corrupt? They became corrupt when they started using the Canadian government's model and style of governance that the Canadian government told them to use. It is a breeding ground for corruption, for separating the leadership away from the people, from, you know, it's just a breeding ground for that. And I, I agree with you. I think it's there in every example of, of, of you know, a governing structure that, that has that colonial uh, foundation. Well, that's what I find very challenging. I mean, um, I'm a firm believer that if we don't study history, we're going to be doomed to repeat it. And I haven't seen anywhere in European history that this model of governance has ever worked out well um, because it has immediate disconnect. Whether your chief and council is corrupt or not, at the very minimum, they're going to be disconnected. Yeah. And that immediately creates this us and them mentality. Yes. Because they're not immediately accountable to you, that means I uh, can I really trust them? Yeah. Well, how how are we as Indigenous people supposed to have whole communities and take responsibility for what we need to get taken responsibility for? Because the government sure isn't going to do it. When we have this, we're, we're unwilling to let go of the system uh, that is by definition causing the problems. Absolutely, and and. You know, a caveat to all this is I don't think they're every, you know, chief and council is corrupt. And I think there's a lot of great people on chief and council, but it's the system. It's 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 like anything in our society today. You can complain all you want, but at the end of the day, there's a system in place that's failing. Uh, you want to talk, you know, the government stealing children. Well, why are they stealing it? The people that work there aren't the ones controlling... Well, they, they are to a certain point, but the reality is is it's a system in place that's causing these children to be continuously stolen. And so when we look at what the problems really boil down to, it's always systemic issues. Um, you know, police uh, brutality or police violence against a certain seg- portion of the population, um, whether it's racial or whatever, is usually a systemic issue. Um, you know, the problems within the government are systemic problems because they have procedures in place and they have to follow those and, and they don't bend to any type of, there's no give there. And so you have to change an entire system before you can see change. And unfortunately, that's what I see in these nonprofit structures, even outside of Métis organizations. When you see these nonprofits, as soon as they get any type of funding and any type of real money going, the board and and I guess the governing structure of the organization just set totally starts to separate from what the organization is there to do. Well, and and you like like the example you gave about the camp there that went to funk. The reality is too is 
that these organizations are completely at the whim of funding. Yes. And so we're going to watch, like we talked about before, these organizations, which are unaccountable, are going to balloon in size. Yeah. And what will happen when the funding dries up is there's going to be layoffs and people are going to lose their jobs and their livelihoods and their paychecks and they're going to be back of the bus. Absolutely. That's the that's the inherent problem with these things. So at, at what point are we able to sit down and and be critical together and say, how can this be a nation to nation relation when the minute the red guys are gone and the blue guys are back, we're going to be back at the bus. Regardless yeah. of the paperwork we've signed, they're going to say, well, that's all fine. We just don't have money to fulfill our obligations. Sorry about your luck. Exactly. Yeah. So all this health care, all this funding, all this housing money, when it all dries up in the next eight or nine years, then what happens? Yeah. Where Where's this nation going to be? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's it's so divisive and, and so, you know, earth shattering that we can't have a conversation about where does this go? I mean, we talk about the seven fires and seven generations. That's the conversation we should be having when we sign these framework deals is when the liberals are gone and the conservatives are back and the funding is dried up. What will our housing situation be? What will our healthcare situation be? Exactly. Exactly. So, you, you know, you look at that and then you look at, say, you take Conklin, for example, who needs this housing funding. So let's say they start getting some housing funding, but by the time they start getting it, uh, they only got about a year, maybe two, and then the funding dries up because we've changed government parties now. Well, so did half of the people that need homes get homes, did a third, and then the rest of them are just out in the cold for the next decade? Like, because there is, like you said, there's no real plan. It's just, the government's giving us money now. Great, the government's not giving us money. Oh, damn. What do you do? Well, right. So as a nation, if we're if we're going to claim that title for this organization that they're they're the representatives of our people, the Métis Nation, how is na- that nationhood going to be solidified long term so that it doesn't matter what party's ruling in the colonial state, our people's futures will be guaranteed? And there just is all the framework, all the paperwork they signed. There's there just isn't any. No, absolutely not. No, and uh, so yeah, it's it's not um, it's not a solid system, and the the governance structure is not solid. the The funding is not solid, and even when they do turn over into an actual corporation, which I'm pretty sure they're going to be doing, I think that's going to be their idea of a nation is to become a corporation. Uh, even still, the funding is going to be required from the government to get any type of sustainable fund where you can actually draw from that fund as your operating money and that's going to take another 30 years to build up um well and, and so. i think you want to see the real inherent danger in this system is we're, we're at a tipping point and i think people aren't really paying attention to where this goes because they're so excited to see the money finally you know you're the jerry Maguire moment you know show me the money <laughs> what, what i don't think they realize though is is past the Trudeau government when he gets back in and, and sure we might have another four years in that. You really look now, we probably won't see a Métis leader that's signing any of these frameworks outlive the Trudeau government. No. Every one of these people is going to step down or retire within the next four or five years. And, and this whole mess, all this paperwork, 
And when all the funding is gone, it's going to be totally kicked to someone else. Mm-hmm. And and we're going to throw our hands in the air and say, oh, well, well, I guess we only knew. And then what do you do? You blame the people that aren't in the room. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I don't know. It, it's not a, I'm not an optimist when it comes to those organizations, but, you know, it's these structures. It's a systemic issue. Um, well, and it is, and I think the challenge is if we at the grassroots lose the ability to continue the conversation and be critical and try to find ways to, to forge ahead, if we lose that ability and we become polarized, then the colonial government wins. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is I find that, you know, like, I don't profess to have all the answers. I don't know everything about, but I mean, it's... It, what I like to do is I like to look at these things through a very critical lens, whether I like it or not. Um, and, and a great example is of that is the Canadian government. Um, I voted for Trudeau because I wanted, there was a few things in their policies that I wanted. And so I voted for them. But that doesn't mean I'm like a happy liberal here today. Um, I'm very disappointed with how he's run things. I'm very disappointed with what's going on. Uh, so you have to be able to look at these things through a critical lens, whether you like them or not. Um, and it, 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 even Eastern Métis organizations, um, you know, there there are some that are kind of have loose and kind of loosey goosey membership requirements. Well, you know what, that is a problem, and we need to look at that through a critical lens. But what I'm finding too is a lot of people just are really using broad strokes to brush everybody as one thing or the other. And, and, I mean, we've talked about this many times. Our issues with the Métis Nation, the Métis National Council, and all these organizations is more an issue of the the way they do things, what they do thing, and how they do things. But it's not really necessarily a, a commentary on the people that are members in those organizations. I know many of those people. I know a lot of members in those organizations that in the Métis Nation of Alberta, and I like them. They're great people. I have no problem. So it's we got to start separating this and stop taking everything so personally and look at it through a critical lens. Yeah. Well, and I think we need to understand that so much of what goes on at the organizational level, at the board level, in every one of these organizations is about a fight in relationship to funding from the federal government. So when you have the Micmac in the East saying there's no Métis in the East, well, is that a identity issue that they're talking about? Or are they simply taking advantage of the politics because their piece of the pie stays wholly intact because they think the pie is limited? Exactly. The funding's limited. Like, and I think really that's what this boils down to. It's easy it's easy for Indigenous people nowadays to play pol- identity politics with each other yeah. to ensure that our place at the government table, you know, I'm further up the feeding trough than you are, you know, yeah. so I don't want to lose my spot. And we play identity politics with each other, you know, pretty fast and pretty loose uh, to for that money. And I think it's pretty dangerous. It is. And, you know, to a certain extent, I can't fault organizations for, and, and nations for doing that because... I mean, they have to take care of their people. They're they're literally tri- fighting for the survival of their languages, their culture, their traditions, their people, their way of life. And I get that. I totally get that. But you're right. It is a bit of a political play to suddenly, you know, where 30, 40 years ago, people were very open about Eastern Métis. Now suddenly there's none. Um, and just the the overall, uh, the, the hatred that spews out of this... Um, 
You know, I I seen some comments uh, made by people towards uh, Sebast- Dr. Sebastian Millet, and honestly, I was absolutely floored. Like, you know, I, I'm pretty used to trolls. I mean, my wife ran for city politics, and there was a couple of dorks that were always on her Twitter saying stupid, stupid things. Uh, so I, I seen this stuff, but, like, there was one guy that literally said he wanted to take Sebastian's head or mount a war party, go and take his head and put it on a stick. And all I could think was, really? Like, all this because Eastern Métis want recognition of who they are, which in no way affects or denigrates or, you know, dissolves the Red River or the Western-based Métis, whatever you want to call them, and their identity. It doesn't take away from what Riel did or who Gabriel DeMont was, or anything. and But you want to put a guy's head on a stick because he has the nerve to do research and actually have some pretty good facts to back up that there are Eastern Métis. And yeah. I just can't believe that that's where we're at today. Well, and that's what I mean is we've got this huge divide. I mean, it doesn't take a genius, and, and uh, Seb does some pretty good legwork to post some pretty obvious newspaper articles and headlines and in, in media about Métis in the East that, uh, you know, if they're not there, well, then they've been faking it for like 40 years. <laughs> yeah, know? or, or there's, over there's 100. People who've been, there's people who've been faking being Métis since, you know, well, before there was a Canada. You know, they're pretty good fakers. Yeah. Um, but but our, our resolve to that, our answer to that, isn't to sit down and say, well, what does this mean? Where does this go? Yeah. It's immediately to vilify it's to denigrate anybody who would put forth an opinion that that uh, contradicts my own. And I think it was uh, Plato who said, the mark of a wise person or an intelligent person is the ability to entertain an idea and reject it. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the real problem is we can't entertain ideas anymore, discuss them. We immediately vilify and demonize anybody who would dare or try to contradict my opinion. And I think that's a sad, sad state when we Indigenous people have succumbed to colonial politics. Absolutely. And that's what it is. That's a that's a colonial mentality on things like, I'm right, you're wrong. That's all there is to it. Um, and it, it really is a sad state of affairs. I mean, I can be pretty stubborn in my opinions too, but the truth is, is I, I would like to think that when, you know, you can sit down and, I mean, I have uh, some friends that are conservatives and they are hardcore and I don't agree with much of what they say, but I can still have lunch with them and hang out with them once in a while and listen to their silliness. And we don't yell and scream at each other or try to put each other's heads on sticks. It's, you know, you can be people. And I think that's a sad, sad play on where we're at in today's day and age. Now, mind you, a lot of this has to do with the how much bravado people have on the internet as though like somehow you're anonymous on there even though you're post pictures and you share everything about your friggin' life but um it still gives people that false sense of security like they can comment on things from three thousand miles away and they're safe in their home in their basement but um the fact that people have these thoughts i mean people are thinking these things they're typing them because they're thinking them and uh yeah i don't know we need to get back to more of a humanity where we actually Hey, if somebody has a, a dissenting voice, let's give them the respect that they deserve and let's listen to them. Let's listen to them with an actual open mind. And maybe they have a really good point. Maybe they don't. But let's at least put some effort into listening. 
which I think for me is something I've noticed very few people have a very good skill of these days is listening, myself included. <laughs> well, it is, and most of us listen these days to respond, to give a rebuttal. Very few of us listen anymore to uh, to be informed and to actually hear what another human being is saying to us. Yes. We wish to just listen to it gets to the good bit where I go back to talking. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I think that's a real challenge. And I think this uh, this leads into something that's coming up here in, in Calgary, and it's gonna we're gonna uh, put it on the show. Um, and I don't know if you're gonna drive from Whitecourt for this, Jason, but I highly suspect you're not. Um, but we are gonna put on together a conversation here in Calgary uh, with Indigenous people, and we're gonna sit down and we're gonna talk about um, you know things like remember what some of the things that Maria Campbell says in her book Halfbreed and. Um, you know, some of this Eastern Western Métis identity, uh, vitriol and, and hate. and But just a lot of the, um, you know, my wife calls it, uh, what the hell does she say, uh, internalized racism, uh, things like that. So we're going to have a good conversation with um, various members of the Indigenous community, First Nations, Métis. Um, hey, if there's Inuit in Calgary, they're welcome to come. But, uh, you know, and we're going to talk about like non-status to status and the, the attitudes and how we're we're shifting around and we're hating on each other rather than than coming together and so i'm really excited to do that and i think it's i'm really hoping that it'll be a great example of where we can sit down and discuss things and talk about things with that open mind so i'm, I'm really looking forward to that that's gonna i think we're gonna do that the first week or two of of april so um just watch for that it'll be out in about three or four shows yeah, that'll be exciting. About time we started talking about how all these divisive lines were put upon us by the government, and we should be putting that divisiveness back on them. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I think we really want to accomplish out of it is, is, is what effect this has on people. Like, forget the government, forget chief and counselor, the Métis Nation of Alberta, forget these organizations. But what effect does this have on people? Because, you know, when... When I talk about Eastern Métis and Western Métis, you know, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and she listens to most of this stuff, and she has her own opinions of it, which are, at 10 years old, they're very similar to my opinions. <laughs> so, um, But how, how much do I want to expose her to these kinds of people that are willing to be so hate-filled and angry uh, about this, uh, uh, really, a topic that should be fairly easy to, con- to talk about? Um, and so there's that danger, like yeah. So it has an effect on people, and it really, it actually really cuts deep for a lot of people. And I hope we get a good, good chance to talk about that when we're doing it too. That'd be excellent. Look forward to it. So, other than that, um, I hope everybody checks out the CBC article on the Conklin housing uh, situation. We posted it on the Jig Is Up Facebook page, so check that out. I wanted to do a quick update on our um, on our culture camp, Sagittawa Métis culture camp. Um, as some of you may or may not know, we have decided to move the camp to the Calgary area, and uh, we picked up some more volunteers that are helping to plan and execute and deliver a really, um, really good camp. And uh, we're you know I'm out scouting locations here in the next couple weekends, so we'll have that nailed down. Uh, we're going to have a lot of activities that we're we're looking at doing, a lot of traditional activities. Um, we're, we're doing a lot of research into traditional uh, Métis games, um, Métis activities, things like that. 
stuff that maybe you wouldn't see at every camp beyond just wearing a sash and doing some canoeing and paddling. We're looking at a lot of different things. There's some, you know, some map making. There's uh, some hiking. We're going to do some orienteering and compass work. Uh, hopefully some archery and things like that. So it's going to be some really great activities. Uh, we're almost at capacity now. So if you do want to, if you're in the Calgary area and you want to get there, it is a family camp. Uh, and so if you want to sign up, head to our website, uh, www.sagittawacamp.com. We'll put the link in the description of the show today. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys sign up. And while you're on the website or on the Facebook page, uh, if you want to support the camp, please, we have some great shirts available that have uh, Christy Belcour's art and uh, Isaac Murdoch's art on them. Um, so check that out on our website. But it's it's shaping up to be an actually a really amazing experience, I think, this summer. It'd be awesome. Yeah. And that's my that's my update on camp. That's all I have. Uh, any Anything you want to get off your chest, Jason, or any final thoughts? No, I think I pretty much ranted myself right out this evening. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, I'm, I, you know, I hope everybody out there enjoys the show. But uh, you know, I hope we we had a great conversation for you. And I guess on that note, for both Jason and I, I hope everybody has a great week. We'll see you next week. Go be a good ancestor. And now the jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. And it will be a fire that doesn't burn, but a fire that cleanses. A fire that ignites in our hearts and creates light. No more.